so as soon as I tur- turned and started to walk away, uh, the, the gentleman, I don't even know if we can call him that, but the, the, the male half of this incident decided to uh, blindside punch me in the side of the head. what gang this show has been on the air for over a year now and i cannot say enough about how many times there's been a guest on this show who comes on and says look i got into a defensive encounter and i talked to the police or i I didn't know what to do when all the dust settled firearms legal protection is there so you can win the fight after the fight and you're able to carry on with your life it is the only defensive legal membership that active self-protection recommends and there's a reason for that they're committed to helping you train and educate yourself And that's why they're invested in bringing these educational and training uh, podcasts and videos to you. Please thank them for their support and consider them for your needs. Check their plans out at get-asp.com slash FLP. Get-asp.com forward slash FLP. Well, alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Active Self-Protection Podcast. I am yet again your host, Mike Williver, and I am your favorite. Say it with me. Former Fed with us today. That's right. With (laughs) us today, a new friend of mine, Mason Bance. He is in Iowa. He is a single father of one child. And as is relevant to the story, he is formerly a police officer and currently works armed security and bail enforcement uh, on the side of that. Mason, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? I'm I'm well. And I say to everyone, thank you so much for writing in, being willing to tell your story. If not for people like you, there wouldn't be a show because no one wants to hear me talk for an hour and furthermore for those of you watching (laughs) on the app this this is what you asked for this is what you get this is my big ugly face for an hour so i hope you enjoy it uh and if you are on the app thank you so much for subscribing to that and helping us further uh the work that we're doing so uh talk us through your history um you were you were a police officer in a local agency we're not going to mention any names or towns but uh, for a time prior to being in law enforcement, did you have, was it always a desire of yours to do something like that? Something like security or law enforcement? Absolutely. So since, uh, the time I can remember probably three, four years old, uh, my mom and dad and, uh, family always said, you know, I always had a, had a toy gun or a badge on my, on my shirt and mm-hmm. was just always constantly wanted to be a police officer growing up. I always loved the crime shows and one of my favorites uh, was always Walker, Texas Ranger. Always wanted to, always wanted to win against the bad guys, you know. So um, it was always a desire, uh, just like every kid, get into some trouble in your youth, you know, and stuff like that. It teaches you some lessons, some valuable lessons. And from there, after high school, me and my three best or two best friends, the three of us total, uh, decided to join in the Marine Corps. And I was going to use that as a as a stepping stone to get to my law enforcement uh, goal. So um, unfortunately. I had to lose a little bit of weight. They shipped out. So I had to just wait until I could do that. And then once I did get to weight, I found out I had colon cancer and was medically discharged. So, oh, man. Uh, yeah, 21 years old, colon cancer, kind of shocked a lot of people. So, um, But anyway, uh, it uh, obviously closed that door and uh, decided to do it the old-fashioned way and enrolled in a community college that has a specific program designed for law enforcement. Uh, the college, uh, literally, it's called the Police Science Program. And it's basically a two-year criminal justice degree. However, it is a lot more hands-on. You know, they actually have a firearms course where you go in and basically all you do is ILEA um, qualifications. They teach you nomenclature and the proper use of firearms and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, we've done CSI classes. Anything that you're going to do as a police officer, it's almost like a mini academy, but over two years. And it gives you a degree while you're doing it. But then... The downside of that is you have to turn around and go to the academy afterwards too. So, yeah, so is that is that is that an Iowa thing or is that specific to that school? I'd never heard of something quite like that. It sounds great. So there's a couple of different community colleges that do it um, in Iowa, and it's uh, I think this particular college is kind of the the start of that kind of trend. Um, but yeah, basically it's a it's a two year degree in criminal justice. It's just got a different different title, and it's more tailored to the individuals that are only going into law enforcement, you know, so they teach you constitutional classes that uh, is going to teach you, you know, everything you need to know about the fourth and fifth amendment, you know, the, the right to search and seizure, you know, and everything that you're going to be dealing with as a law enforcement officer, it is really tailored to that. And then in Iowa, if you have a, at least a two year degree, then you can go through a shortened academy in the state of Iowa, the Iowa law enforcement Academy. 
is uh, 16, 17 weeks long. And if you have this degree or even a criminal justice degree, I do believe suffices as well. You can go through a shortened academy, which is only like nine weeks. It's literally half the time because you have some of that experience already. That also be my suggestion that there should be an abbreviated academy if you've been through that and shown Definitely. And all that stuff. That's a great idea. Yeah, I think people don't realize how much um, law enforcement training varies across the country. It's very different in different places. So sometimes that's necessary. Some places give more training than others. Um, I was fortunate to work around a lot of really well-trained, capable law enforcement agencies in Southern California. Um, San Diego Sheriff's being hands, hands, hands down my favorite agency to work with. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and those guys do not just the academy, but, you know, obviously you're going to qualify and go through firearms and use of force training every quarter, four times a year. Uh, my agency did the same thing. Uh, but they stand down for two weeks a year. And they call it mobile field force training where they go out and they practice their, you know, uh, riot response and all that kind of stuff. And it really shows. I think um, there was a Trump rally in San Diego back for the 2016 election. And, of course, all the attendant madness that goes with that with all the Antifa people showing up and and the, uh, the opposition people showing up. And they handled that really, really well. They, they took care of business. Anyway, but I digress. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I digress. So um, did you did you finish that two-year course or no? So I, I did not. So I was about three semesters in when I got the call from my department to come work them. And I'm going to give you a little backstory on that. So in the state of Iowa, I don't know how California is or even Arizona, but uh, we do have uh, what are called reserve officers. And that's what I was. So I was not a fully sworn officer. I was a reserve peace officer. In the state of Iowa, a reserve peace officer can do every function that a fully sworn officer can do except for one, imply consent which for those that don't know is just basically this document that you have to read an individual if they get a if they're suspected of an OWI, basically getting their consent to do a blood test, uh, uh, blood or alcohol analysis on their breath or anything like that. I could not physically read that form to them and have them sign it. Hmm. Um, and, and then two, I cannot physically serve a search warrant. So I can write one up, I can have it signed by a judge, and I could a- assist on whatever that warrant is entailed for. But I could not be the physically one to be like, here you go, Mike, you're being served a search warrant. Okay. Those are literally the only two things as a reserve as an officer that I could not do. That's interesting. I, so I, I had to... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I... I, I was just going to say... <laughs> well, we're doing this now, are we? There we go. We're doing this now? <laughs> yep, yep. So I worked as a seasonal police officer in Ocean City, Maryland. A lot of people on the East Coast do that. It's where... It's a, it's a small town, and I'm making the numbers up, but say maybe 30,000 people live there year-round. And mm-hmm. during the summer, everyone shows up from all over... Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware to come and Virginia to come to the beach. It's the biggest sort of beach in that area. And so the population swells from, and again, I'm making these numbers up, but they're roughly accurate from like 30,000 to like 3 million and all these rental properties fill up. So they bring in usually college age people are the ones that do it. Although there's no restriction on the age, I don't think. And you come down, you go through an abbreviated academy and you're out there to supplement the full-time police officers. You are sworn Technically, you can do all the things a regular police officer can do. At least that was the case when I was there, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm wrong, somebody correct me. Um, But you're not you're not responding to, um, well, you're responding to pretty much everything, but you're not going to be the investigating officer on a homicide or anything crazy like that. You know, you're mainly uh, there for force multiplier. You know, there's just more cops in uniform out on the boardwalk, out on the street. Um, but for anything super serious, generally speaking, a full-time officer would handle it. But that was a great experience. Um, and I, I would imagine the reserve officer program in part is a pipeline to becoming a fully sworn full-time officer. Or is that, or are they, people just do that and stay reserved their whole career? So it's a little bit of both. And it's very similar to what you explained. Um, so in the state of Iowa, there's a lot of people that do it as uh, as a way to give back to their community. You know, like uh, I've been a volunteer firefighter almost my entire adult life. Um, I'm almost 30, 30 years old now. So, I mean, that's going on 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it, reserve police officer is very similar to that. And the state of Iowa does not require a department to pay their reserve officers, except for a dollar per year, which I think is for liability and uh, insurance purposes. Um, don't quote me on that. I can't say, but it does say in our statute in Iowa that you have to be paid a minimum of a dollar per year. So, mm. um, And then there is a lot of officers that like myself when going to college you use that as a stepping stone to get your foot in the door start learning the job and to go from there and what's crazy like you explained is we're used as an extension of the department uh where i worked is very very small communities and once i got trained and i went through we have what's called reserve modules so it's basically a little academy tailored to a reserve officer 
And where I worked, I was actually a paid reserve. And then because we were in such small communities, the, the largest community I worked in was 2,200 people. Again, like yourself, it was along the Mississippi River, so it doubled, you know, with all the what we called river rats, you know, everybody flocking to the river. It would double or triple in size and population. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, because of that, I was utilized basically as a part-time officer, and I would work 90% of the time by myself. I was the only officer on duty, and my nearest backup would be a deputy in the county, an adjacent town, which I think the closest one was 19 or 20 miles away. Or a trooper, if there was one in the in the area. So uh, I gained a lot of valuable experience by doing that, and then eventually uh, my work ethic showed and stuff like that. So I ended up having three other departments hire me on as a reserve, and between the four, I was working full time hours. Wow. Okay. So were you? Get, like, can I ask? Were you getting paid a dollar a year? Or were you getting paid actual money by at least one of these? Places? No. So, so I was I was fortunate enough to where we were at because they utilized the reserves as basically part time officers. I was getting paid a a decent wage. Um, it's obviously, it would be hard to live off of now, you know, six, seven years later, you know, but, uh, I also wasn't making as much as a full-time officer either, but I was getting compensated for my time and my efforts, uh, especially since I was being utilized basically as a part-time officer. Very good. So there's two incidents here. I'm going to try to cram two into this one, one episode. And these, these shows mm-hmm. can be as long or shorter than, as they need to be to tell the story. That's one of the things I love about, ASP in the leadership team here is they don't put a lot of restrictions on me. It doesn't need to be a certain length of time. So we can explore this and take as long as we need. Um, so you have two incidents that are both roughly similar, eerily similar in the circumstances of where you were and who you mm-hmm. were with and what you were doing. Um, so let's <laughs> yeah. walk through those one at a time. Uh, the first one, uh, I did read your email and you gave me a lot of info, which is fine. Um, so I know more about this than normally I would. But the first incident happened at a at a movie theater. Uh, so kind of talk to us who you were with, um, what movie you were seeing, what the rating of the movie was. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> talk <laughs> us through what happened. The movie ends and then what? So I'll start out by saying uh, it was, I don't remember the year specifically, but it was when Super Troopers came out. Of course, you know, going to school to be a cop, you know, love of law enforcement, got to go see Super Troopers. You, you know, are freaking out, man. <laughs> Cops love that movie. So, oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, so with me and a buddy who uh, we went to college together in that police science program, we decided to go to the local movie theater in the, the town that the college was in. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I was a reserve officer um, and not being a fully sworn officer. Uh, I'm not obligated to assert myself into any situations Uh, like a full-time officer. You're basically on the job Mm -hmm. all the time, whether you want to be or not, it's just kind of what you sign up for as a reserve officer. The only time I'm basically protected under, under the rights that I have as an officer when I'm doing the job. Um, So I was completely out of my jurisdiction, just hanging out with a buddy, went to a movie. Uh, We decided, you know, the movie is over. We're just going to come outside the, uh, movie theater mm-hmm. have a good conversation just sitting there shooting shooting the you know shooting the birds you know we'll, we'll put it that way sure. i'm gonna use a different word but let's, sure. not, no, I let's got not use explicitive so um anyway we're just sitting there talking and uh hear hear a commotion kind of coming from over along the side of the movie theater so uh me being nosy and kind of who i am i decided to check it out see what the heck's going on um you never know so i start walking over there and i see a male and a female arguing um I'm one of those people I don't I don't believe in uh, being abusive to women either verbally or physically um, and then just kind of my background stuff like that I was I was not having it so I made the the conscious decision to step in you know and I went up there and I had a conversation with the the aggressor which was the male half and we sat there and talked for a little bit and uh, he was very very heated uh, verbally aggressive towards me towards the woman um, but the worst thing I saw with him is he was kind of shoving and pushing her around a little bit, mm-hmm. but like didn't see any weapons or anything that really made me like super, super concerned. But at the same time, I just felt it wasn't right and he needed to stop. So, um, made that conversation with him and, uh, got him to calm down a little bit. And I thought, you know, I thought that I did a pretty good job and, uh, you know, I never once announced myself as a police officer. I'm not in my jurisdiction. Okay. You know, it's not really, not really my place to, to do that. I was just a upstanding citizen concerned for her well being. And I didn't like how he was treating her. So I just told them to stop it and then uh, turned around and started to walk away. So you walk away from this guy. Do, do you feel like he had cooled down? Is that why you decided to, to walk away from this situation? I felt that, but he did not feel that. Ah. Um, so as soon as I tur- turned and started to walk away, uh, the, the gentleman 
I don't even know if we can call him that, but the the, the male half of this incident. Right. That guy. Uh, yep, yep, we'll go with that. That guy decided to uh, blindside punch me in the side of the head. So um, I ended up getting knocked to the ground because of it. And from there, I had to kind of basically make a decision on what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. So from there, I, uh, I, I got up. Um, we didn't go into the backstory of, you know, kind of my, my life, you know, like some of the other guests we do, because we talked a little bit about my law enforcement, but I'm also a, a secondary black belt in Taekwondo. Okay. So I have quite a bit of martial arts training um, and things of that nature. Thank you, Chuck Norris and Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> he doesn't um, do push-ups. He pushes the earth down underneath him. Exactly. And real quick, some (laughs) some folks now watching will be like, why is he looking away and typing? I like to keep notes um, so I don't forget stuff at the end. We go over lessons. So I'm not being rude. I am listening. That's what I'm doing there. So moving on. So you start to walk away. And and you're good. What does this guy decide to do as a result? So he decides to punch me in the side of the head and blindside me. At that point, my back is turned to him. Yep. Yep. Uh, my back was turned to him. I was completely oblivious to what was going to happen next. And at that point, he decided to strike me in the side of the head and knock me to the ground. Um, obviously, being the type of person I am, I'm not going to take that. So I got up uh, and I I returned a strike back to him. And my one strike landed just just right that I was able to to basically knock him out. So what what manner, what sort of strike are we talking about? So I did the old-fashioned roundhouse kick. You know, Taekwondo is, is, it's a a lot of kicking, Mm -hmm. a lot of kicking, a lot of fancy kicking. It looks cool on TV and stuff like that. You know, it's not necessarily the most practical in real life, you know, in real life fighting. Um, but I just had an open opportunity, you know, I just kind of let my instincts kick in, you know, I kick a lot of, a lot of bags and do Mm -hmm. a lot of sparring. So I felt comfortable in that maneuver and I ended up landing a roundhouse kick right to the, right to his jaw here. So, um, it, one kick knocked him out and and then the ensuing chaos is uh, kind of one of the reasons I wrote in. Um, there's definitely, I definitely learned a lesson from that day for sure. So, so I think, and I'll I'll jump ahead to one of the lessons here. We you have to talk about it is, mm-hmm. do you get involved in a third party encounter? And that is one of those things that only you can you know you can decide for yourself under the circumstances. But it helps absolutely it helps to have thought through this sort of thing before before it actually happens. Had you given thought previously to okay if i'm out and about and i'm not on duty and i'm not considered a police officer and i come across something am i going to get involved or not or was it very case specific to this incident for you so for me it's a little difficult uh i always consider myself a protector of people i'm constantly running through my head scenarios you know i can still carry every day Uh, i have other tools on me that i feel is part of my you know, not even a, just a firearm, just things that I carry every day that is part of my life and who I am. And it's mm-hmm. going to better prepare me for hopefully any situation I run into. So I'm constantly talking to myself and preparing myself with mental reputations, uh, just making sure that, you know, if anything were to arise, that hopefully I've had that scenario in my head that I can jump to action and protect myself or others around, whether I know them or not. Just the type of person I am. Um, I never thought of it in the way of, you know, being a law enforcement officer, uh, off duty in a, in a place that I'm not in a jurisdiction. I never thought of it that way. I literally just thought of it as, you know, an, I'm an upstanding citizen of this community, you know, whether I'm living there or not, it's, it's the community I'm in presently. And I need to do what I can to protect those citizens around me. Um, and consequences be damned, you know, that's, and that's how I, that's how I looked at it. And that's just kind of my mindset. Cause I want to help everybody. Sure. And, uh, so I didn't really think of the consequences. I just thought of, you know, what can I do to help this person to make sure that this woman especially isn't getting abused or hurt in public. It's bad enough when someone does it behind closed doors, in my opinion, like a coward, you know, but then when you do it in public like that, that's just a whole nother level of disrespect. So the you know, police came and immediately hailed you as a hero and gave you the key to the city. Absolutely not. Oh, absolutely not. So what did so, happen? So, uh, Due to the situation, a lot of people had already called 911. Um, so unbeknownst to me, the law enforcement was already en route. Uh, at that point, nothing was physical other than him grabbing her and screaming and yelling at her. And then all of a sudden, here comes this big burly guy. You know, I'm not a small guy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit he- on the heftier side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of a sudden, here comes this big burly guy. You know, all of a sudden, these two gentlemen are having a heated conversation. You know, so I'm sure some people were definitely concerned at that point. Um, I mean... It was literally seconds after he hit the ground that law enforcement showed up. And it was at that point, here I am standing over a gentleman who is now unconscious on the ground. 
And the first thing, you know, even me as a law enforcement officer, and I think you as a law enforcement officer, you roll up to a scene like that and you see that you're going to go to the person that appears to be the aggressor. And at that point, it was me. Mm-hmm. So I got placed into handcuffs immediately. In in that moment, they put you in cuffs. I, I'm sure because you're in the business, you weren't freaking out as a, maybe a non-cop might be like, holy crap, and, and protesting vehemently because, you know, this is just what they have to do. Is that what you were thinking or were you were you a little freaked out of it in that moment? Yeah. A little bit of both. Right. A little bit of both. Um, so I didn't immediately start babbling. You know, obviously with some of my training, obviously I know that anything I do say, whether they read me Miranda or not, whether I'm under arrest or not, uh, can be used against me in the court of law. Mm-hmm. So I didn't start babbling and screaming, you know, I did this, I did that, or I didn't do this, didn't do that. Um, I just kind of stayed silent, just complied with their commands. I did inform the officer, you know, just so you know, I do have a firearm on me. Mm-hmm. Um, he went and secured that and then uh, had me sit on the push bump of the squad car. Um, and then I just kept my mouth shut until an officer came to the, start talking with me. So he, this officer comes over to you, uniformed police officer. And mm-hmm. does he Mirandize you first? Does he start asking questions first? Or what, walk us through that. What was that like? So the first thing that happened is they put me in handcuffs. They, I told them about the firearm. They cleared my firearm. They sent me on the push bumper of the, of the patrol vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, they had an officer sit with me. And then basically they went and rendered aid to the other male individual. Of course, once he woke up, that man assaulted me, this and that. Right. You know, the whole charade of, uh, you know, went, went through to there. So uh, from there, we sat down. Um, they came over and because of his statements, they didn't Mirandize me at that point. Okay. So they Mirandize you. I assume they're talking to other people, witnesses, maybe the, mm-hmm. the female half of the domestic and they, they weed through all that. Then they come talk to you. They Mirandize you. And what, what is their initial questioning? Like, what are they asking you? So first, first they obviously the re Miranda. Um, and then they go through and ask me questions of, you know, one, what was my purpose there? You know, things, things of that nature. Uh, you know, why did I strike him the way that I did? Why couldn't I just have punched him? You know, why did I have to go and kick him? Uh, and I just explained to him, you know, based off my self-defense and, and the situation at hand, you know, that's that's the strike that I felt most comfortable with. Um, and then, you know, they asked me, you know, why I strike, you know, struck him. And I just went into the detail, you know, and I kept it very short, very brief. I wasn't trying to give too much information. All I basically said was, you know, uh, I, I intervened in what appeared to be a domestic situation between a male and a female. I thought the situation was, you know, calmed down. The male seemed a little bit calm. I turned around to walk away, and that's when he he hit me blindsided, and I just retaliated in self-defense. Uh, luckily, at that point, other officers had finished their conversations with other people, and uh, um, shortly thereafter, they actually came in and did the cuffs on my hands. So um, it's a little weird, you know. I understand the the Mirandization um, because at that point I seemed like the aggressor and they wanted to ask questions, you know, and obviously we all know that if they don't Mirandize me, you know, those questions may not hold up in court, especially when it comes to an assault or a potential crime like that. So, right. um, but at the same, but at the same time, it was a little odd that they Mirandized me and literally a few minutes later than they released me. So, well, I think, I mean, fortunately for you, <laughs> as you indicated in your email, everyone kind of had the same story, including the, the female mm-hmm. half. Is that correct? The female half of the domestic was oh, also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which was shocking to me dealing with a few domestics myself, um, on the job. Uh, you know, we read stories all the time on how a, an abused, uh, female or even men, you know, we always talk about the female, right? Um, but even men, there's some men out there that are in a bad relationship like that, that are, are just in the same position that a female is. We just always say it's the female, right? Right. And we oftentimes see, and I think you can, you can say this, you know, even more than I am with the, the many years of your experiences, very oftentimes those abused halves uh, will oftentimes go back to their abuser or basically tell or agree with their side of the story, you know, yeah. to try and not get them in trouble and, or turn on the officer who's there to help them. That happens mm-hmm, probably exactly. half the time where all of a sudden, you know, and I say this all the time, I, I beat this horse, uh, silly, but you can fully expect if you arrive at a domestic violence scene, wherever it is in public or at someone's house or apartment, um, the minute you come through the door, there's this, I don't, I don't understand the syndrome, but it's like, a like being held hostage where you start to sympathize with your hostage takers, uh, Stockholm syndrome, but it's something else. Um, and frequently 
they will you'll be now fighting both the male and female half or you know the male male or female female whatever it might be you're you're now fighting with both of them because they yep. you've interjected yourself into this very emotional very high stress environment and they 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 don't want you there I, I think in part this is my my theory anyway is that it's frequently the case that you know it used to be the case a lot where they would show up and they would be like oh it's mutual combat you know we can't arrest anybody and then the police leave. So if you if you are the female half or the victim half, whatever that might be, and the police come and don't arrest anyone, and you're there telling them, "Yeah, he hit me, he hit me," then you're going to get it worse when the police leave uh, potentially. So that's probably mm-hmm. something to do with it. So um, was this guy? Did this guy end up getting arrested by them or no? So yes, eventually once all the stories came out, obviously my buddy was there. He did not get involved. He was not a law enforcement officer and he didn't feel comfortable, you know, and not me being a law enforcement officer made me feel more comfortable than him. I just, I just did. I felt, felt comfortable in that situation. I put myself in that situation, but he told my side of the story. There was other bystanders, uh, you know, this was, you know, five, six years ago. Uh, There's people that recorded it. Um, And then the female, you know, she did, she actually came and said, no, he, my my boyfriend was being aggressive with me. This gentleman came in to basically stop my boyfriend, just told him to, you know, just be nice, you know, and then he, he did what he did. So, and well, then that's uh, good news. shortly thereafter, absolutely for, for me and for her. Um, but then shortly thereafter, they placed him in the cuffs and uh, he was arrested not only for assaulting me, but also for the domestic assault on her. So very good. Um, we already talked about one of the two lessons I wanted to take out of this, which was, do you get involved or not? And that's something you have to, Hopefully, have thought through ahead of time, and it really is a case dependent, uh, a case dependent thing. It could be that it's just you, and the male half is, you know, clearly twice your size and capable of, you know, and you're not armed. There's no other, you know, OC. There's nothing you can do but call the police and hope for the best. Um, I would say, and I didn't ask you this, but you know, once you break contact with someone mm-hmm. like that. I'm a big fan of walking, of backing up a few feet, getting away from them a little bit before you turn your back because you just don't know. Although, I mean, you felt like this guy had calmed down, so no harm, no foul. But for someone listening, there's your there's your mental rep. Get a little space before you oh, turn your back on. Oh, absolutely. I can definitely second that. Uh, it was definitely a big lesson I took away from that. Um, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I, I, I believe that everybody is kind at heart. You know, obviously doing the job, I see otherwise. You know, but at the same time, I still have that internal belief that people are good, inherent belief that people are good. And it can be detrimental. And I learned my lesson that day, not to turn my back on someone, especially someone that was aggressive towards me. Right. Um, I just got a text from John. Oh, it's a meme. Of course it's a meme. (laughs) Oh, John Korea, you and your memes. Um, So I want to move on to the second story. Um, Believe it or not, folks, he was at another movie with the same friend. Yeah, same friend. Same friend, and how how far after the first incident was the second one? So this was a couple years afterwards. I'm no longer a law enforcement officer at this point. Okay. I'm just a normal law-abiding, Second Amendment-loving citizen. So So what movie were you seeing this time? Was it Super Troopers 3? Right, right. Is there even a Super Troopers 3? I I, I don't think so, no. (laughs) I don't think so. But uh, honestly, I don't even remember on this one. This one is... I think this situation which we'll get into is a lot higher stress to where I think some of the events of that day have still not returned to my memory. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, probably the little things like the movie. I remember I went to a movie, right. But I don't remember the movie we were watching. Okay. So, um, but yeah, so ironically going to another movie with the same friend, uh, in a, in a, in a different town, this one was much, much smaller. Uh, we were just passing through. This is actually on the complete opposite side of the state uh, in a town that he lived. It was like on a, on his spring break or something like that. And I went over and was just, we we're just visiting, you know? Okay. So uh, we went to this movie. Um, I can see carry uh, almost, I'd say 98% of the time, unless I'm working uh, my armed security job, my bail enforcement or back then law enforcement officer. You know, I'm almost always concealed carrying. Uh, when I first started carrying kind of a little bit of backstory, I thought it was cool to open carry. You know, I think a lot of people do. In the state of Iowa, you can open carry, and now we have constitutional carry. A lot of folks go through that phase, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I open carried at first. You know, uh, obviously you get them weird stares. Everybody's like, oh, most people are oblivious. They're on their phone. A lot of people are a little more cognizant than what other people give them credit for. Sure. So um, 
I kind of got tired of the stairs. And then when I, when I did get into law enforcement and got those stairs daily, not only because I'm carrying a firearm, but because of the uniform in general, mm-hmm. um, I just decided, you know, I, I get them stairs constantly at work. I don't need to have that type of, uh, you know, almost like laser being pointed at me every day of my life. Sure. You know, so I decided to start concealed carrying. I started at the three thirty four o'clock position because I'm a bigger guy. And then uh, within the last couple of years, I've actually moved into the appendix position, which I love all the advantages of it. Um, for some people, you can do it. Some people, you can't. Uh, yeah, being I a bigger can. guy, everybody's like bigger. Yeah, exactly. And everybody's like bigger people. You can't do it. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm five foot eight, two seventy. I got a I got a belly on me. And for me, it all comes down to holster and belt combination. If you have a good holster and a good carry belt that can support that holster, then you can make anything work. And that's not just for the appendix carry, but you know, I, I digress from that. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So anyway, I kind of got on that tangent there, but I can seal carry my buddy. He was kind of at that phase of his life. He was doing a lot of open carry. Um, so being in a movie theater and stuff like that, we felt it was probably in the best interest that he didn't carry in the movie theater. So he left his firearm in the vehicle. Um, after the, after the movie, we were on the way back to his house and we stopped at a gas station to relieve ourselves and get some refreshments and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's when, that's when that day took a, a crazy turn. So, um, and then I can just hop into the story from here. Yeah. So we, uh, uh, so we were actually in the back of the store, um, by the coolers getting some refreshments. Sorry, my dog's barking cause my buddy's. That's okay. <laughs> working on my car. In, so. the, in the age of work uh, from home and Zoom calls, everyone everyone forgives you for having your dog barking or your baby crying <laughs> in the background. That's fine. Right, right. Luckily, he's at daycare today, so we don't have to worry about that one. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, so we're back in our refreshments, and uh, lo and behold, another domestic breaks out where I'm at. Um, and if you talk to anybody that knows me, whether uh, you know I was a police officer, bail enforcement, security now um, – you talk to anybody that knows me, I'm going to be a little explicit here, but they always call me a shit magnet. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, it, it, it sticks to me. People, bad things just kind of happen around me and it's, I don't know, some of it's, I'm very observant. It's and a I very, just very real things. thing. I can confirm. Ask me how I know that that's a real thing. <laughs> um, but anyway, so jump ahead. Needless to say, me and my friend haven't gone to a movie together since because of all this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll, I don't blame we'll, you. We'll, we'll, We'll stay at home and we'll like voodoo a movie now or something like that. Right. So, um, but anyway, and then someone so breaks we, in your house as the credits are rolling, right? I'm watching a movie at home. <laughs> I feel like that'd even be a worse idea. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, um, anyway, so we're getting our refreshments at the cooler, and all of a sudden we hear this female scream, and it was not a just a like a little kid screaming. I mean, it was a blood curdling like fear for my life scream. So I take off running to the to the front of the store, and there's people kind of running out of the store. So I know something crazy is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to look over, and here's this guy physically restraining this female, and he's got a knife to her stomach, and she is she's extremely pregnant, um, and you can just see the fear on her face. And he's like, being a cop, I've been in some critical incidents, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and like I could just, you could tell she was she was scared for her life. Okay, so, so he's got a knife that, to her pregnant stomach at this point. About how far away mm-hmm. are you when you when this all clicks and you realize what's happening? I mean, I circled around from the cooler to around the counter area. I'd say I was probably within ten yards, so uh, 10, 15, 10, 10, 12 yards, something okay. like that. So I mean. Close enough that uh, close enough that I could, you know, I could do something if I needed to. But at the same time, I'm not going to get too close with a knife. You know, that's a, that's a huge threat. Right. Um, but anyway, so I, uh, being a concealed carry holder, you know, and then even though I'm not a cop anymore, I kind of reverted back to my cop training. You know, uh, jumping ahead, I talked to an officer later on after the incident. Uh, uh, surprise alert. I didn't shoot the person. Um, but uh, the officer straight up asked me, he's like, why didn't you shoot the individual? And I said probably because of my training and where I'm going with this is I drew my firearm and I instantly started giving him commands, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very loud, stern voice, you know, drop the knife, drop the knife, you know, put the knife down stuff like that. And, uh, he definitely was not expecting it. And I broke his OODA loop mm-hmm. to the point where he, he froze for a second and it actually allowed her to get away. 
Okay. She took off running and ran, ran out of the, uh, the, the front door of the establishment. So, so in the, uh, in the moment when you drew the gun initially, is he in this traditional, um, hostage stance where he's standing behind her and you only have a small target or is he next to her? What's his orientation to the, to the, uh, potential victim? So he's actually like facing her, um, because with one hand, he's like got a hold of her arm, uh, like her forearm because she was trying to pull away mm-hmm. and he had a hold of her forearm and he was like pulling her to him. And it was at that point when she wasn't, when she was resisting and just wouldn't listen to him that he pulled the knife and put it up to her belly and said, you need to stop. Or I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you and the baby. Uh, and he, he, I could literally hear him say that. Okay. Um, so I think it was very shortly after that is when I decided to, to draw and present my firearm on him. Can I ask what you were so, carrying that day? So this is before I transitioned to the red dots. Um, I think it was a Gen 1 sh- Smith & Wesson uh, shield. Okay. Um, that was like one of my first concealed carry guns uh, to this day. I, I love the the shield. Um, I have since moved on to a little bit bigger, but not quite bigger, but better things. Um, so now, for the most part, I either carry a, a 43X uh, with a red dot and flashlight, or um, I carry a Hellcat Pro. I just like that that new micro gun that everybody's going to, it's got the kind of the full size grip, but it's slim and narrow and super easy to conceal. And this episode will be brought to you by HK USA. Um, because <laughs> I can't, I just can't let you name all those other guns and not mention HK, the far superior. Right. Right. We had someone write an email and asking us to quit being snobs about HKs. And I'm like, well, <laughs> they give us free guns. I'm going to say nice things about them. They don't have to be the right. best firearm in the world. They just are, in my opinion, the finest pistols you can get um anyway i i digress again we're digressing a lot here so she <laughs> runs out of the store what happens next so at that point he starts fronting on me um he doesn't come at me but he's basically making making gestures and saying things like you know like my life's over stuff like that like just kill me just end it now you know and i'm like no 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 like you know stay where you are you know like i don't want to shoot you but i will if i have to you know like we can work through this and during that time, my buddy actually ran out to check on her. And the clerk was actually, I don't, I don't want to say the word coward because that's, that's not what he was doing. He was, he was in life preservation mode. He was scared, mm-hmm. but he was hunkered down behind the counter. And I literally yelled at him. I said, call 911, you know, which granted, I'm sure a lot of other people already did. But I said, call 911. So he did. And as I'm sitting there talking with this guy, my buddy actually retrieved his firearm out of the car and tried to come back in. And I yelled at him. I was like, stay outside. I was like, we don't need two people in here aggravating this individual even more. I said, you call 911, you know, and this guy is super trained on me, so he's not even paying attention to what I'm saying. But I tell my buddy, I was like, call 911 and literally tell them, you know, the guy with the gun is the good guy. Right. Don't shoot the guy with the gun. Um, some of that is from some of the trainings I've been at, you know, as a cop. And then obviously this is before active self-protection was kind of a, uh, I think maybe the, the videos were kind of starting to take off at this time. I don't remember what guys you guys what year you guys founded, but um, but either way, you know, you guys talk about that a lot. If you could potentially, you know, say something like that or give that kind of information, it'd probably be wise to do so. And yep. I did. And anyway, so he went back outside. He called cops and informed them. And I just basically held my gun trained on him the entire time and just talked to him, had a conversation with him, uh, tried to get him to drop the knife. He wouldn't. Um, it didn't take very long for law enforcement to show up. And when they did, it was only like two officers. I was kind of shocked. I was like. This is kind of a serious situation. I'm surprised there's not more officers. Mm-hmm. Um, but smaller communities, kind of like what I worked in, you know, where I was the only officer on duty to where my backup might have been a deputy, like I said, you know, miles away. Right. Or they'd have to call in another full-time officer. So so I, under, I understood it. So the officer came in. He started talking to the individual. And at that point, he said, you know, sir, I need you to go outside. So I retreated outside and uh, met up with my friend. Slowly, one by one, more officers started arriving. and. Uh, they talked to that individual, I mean, seemed like forever, but I think it only lasted 20, 30 minutes maybe, which is a long time. But when you think about standoffs and stuff like that, you hear about hours and hours long. Days right? sometimes, yeah. Exactly. So um, to my surprise, they 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 got him somewhat calm to and receptive to the one officer, uh, but he wouldn't put the knife down. They ended up sneaking an officer in behind him and actually ended up tasing him. And that's how they ended up getting him into custody. A little Zeus juice, huh? Took him down? Yeah. Yep, exactly, exactly. And if anybody's never been tased, it's uh, it's the 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 
Worst five seconds of your life. And I think Mike can uh, attest to that. It's yeah, not I actually, fun. I actually never was trained with a taser. We never, our agency, it was a federal agency. They, I think they just mm-hmm. got tasers as I was leaving. They're a little slow to adopt new stuff. Yeah. In fact, we, we moved from gun and fists and that's it to adding mm-hmm. pepper spray and batons in 1997 or eight. So that's how slow we were to pick oh, up wow. that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I uh, never trained. I did have a friend of mine who was a trainer um, just for, just for gigs, you know, one night we're, we're bored as, as a, we're doing a gang op and there's just nothing going on and it's mm-hmm. so slow and it's late. And he had the one where you just clip it, you clip them on rather than actually deploying oh, the, the gator, taser. the gator clips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it yeah. sucked. It sucked. And apparently that doesn't suck as, as much as actually getting tased. So I can't imagine what that feels like, but I'm, I'm good. I feel like yeah. I've been pepper sprayed. I was an instructor for our agency for pepper spray years ago and I got pepper sprayed like nine different times. Oh, uh, my for training and um yeah plus you know as you know you catch some in the field a little you know uh, a little oh, wind goes a long way talk to you... me about that i have a i have a partner in bail enforcement every time he pulls that thing out you better close your eyes because you're going to get in yeah i yeah, think i've uh i've been exposed one time for training for my because in iowa you have to take an exposure to be in law to, in order to carry it as a law enforcement officer mm-hmm. and then i've probably been exposed another at least six times just in the field from other officers from overspray or in the case of my buddy, who's actually a part owner of the company I was telling you about, um, it, this last time we were fighting with a fugitive, and yeah, it, it got everywhere. We all got it. And uh, afterwards, he's like, I'm not carrying this stuff anymore. <laughs> Needless to say, it's still on his belt. So, <laughs> yeah, it has its place. It's like anything else. Like, there's times when, you know, you're, you're looking at a bad guy who's, who's not complying. You got to get him into custody and you have to use force. Um, but if he's wearing, mm-hmm. uh, he's wearing a t shirt. A button down and a baggy hoodie over top of that taser is probably not going to do anything. It's not going to not going to get oh, absolutely not a connection. So maybe pepper spray is appropriate, but it, it like anything else, it has its time and place. And sometimes it's just too windy. It's not going to. You're more likely to affect your partner than the bad guy with it. So oh, discretion is the the better part of uh, valor. So you get this guy into custody. Um, I at no point. I assume at no point during this interaction with the police did you feel like they were questioning you or they thought anything you did anything inappropriate. No, absolutely not. Uh, so afterwards, they had a, an investigator uh, with the actual state. So in a lot of these smaller towns and stuff like that, they'll handle, they'll handle crimes and investigate themselves, even me as a reserve officer, as long as it wasn't something like crazy, crazy, like, you know, as long as it wasn't like murder mm-hmm. or like suicide or, or something like that. Like even I as a reserve officer would investigate like my own potential crimes, you know, Um but something like super serious or something like that, they would call in the state investigative team. Um, and since, you know, this was basically an attempted murder charge, uh, they, you know, and being a small agency, they ended up bringing in a state investigator to assist with this situation. So, so I talked to officers on scene there for a little bit, and then I got a call like a day or two later from that actual investigator. We sat down and discussed a couple things. So, yeah, I think, um, if anything, the lessons out of this are pretty straightforward. You again, you have to have had that conversation, especially if you're carrying a firearm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that conversation with yourself: What am I going to get involved? What am I not? Um, and I, you know, we we don't. I don't have a lot of hard and fast rules in life, and certainly I don't have one regarding this. You have to know your capabilities, your firearms training, whether you feel completely confident uh, with your gun and with your marksmanship, um, whether or not the people are moving around a lot, or you have a good shot, or whatever. But for me, and just speaking for me personally, and I'm sure you feel the same way, I can't imagine not getting involved in that. Um, I can't imagine being armed, being in the right place, and seeing a, a woman and her baby being threatened with a knife and going, not my circus, not my monkeys. You know what I mean? I feel like most oh, people absolutely. would have to have to insert themselves into that. But it pays for you to have some training. If you're the kind of guy or gal that buys whatever gun they told you to buy at the gun store and puts it in an Uncle Mike sausage sack and doesn't train, doesn't go to the range, doesn't do any kind of training, um, any force on force or whatever, and you're just sort of milling about with a gun you don't know anything about because you've never fired it, you know, you you could make that situation worse, potentially. You know, if you decide to insert yourself and you don't know what you're doing and you haven't had that conversation with yourself, uh, absolutely that gun can get taken from you. You can end up shooting the victim, shooting the, Mm. the unborn child or whatever. So when I say I can't imagine not getting involved, I'm talking about people who have taken their self-defense training seriously and done everything they can do to prepare themselves for that possibility. Um, so yes, want to add that word of caution. Um, Absolutely. 
yeah, I was going to ask about either one of these. It had to be hard to see a woman being held at knife point, especially a pregnant woman. Um, any any kind of PTS from that for you, or or any any dreams, any nightmares, any hyper vigilance? Not, not particularly. Um, I I the, the stupid thing is, is I wish I could reach out to her. You know, this is years past, and I never did get her name. Mm-hmm. I did find out by the investigator that they did charge him with attempted murder times two. Um, not only for her, but for the unborn child. And he actually did tell me the whole reason this even started is another domestic situation. She was tired of getting abused that she was trying to leave. Mm. She left the house. He ended up following her, followed her to this gas station, was trying to basically kidnap her and force her back into the car. God only knows what. And she was refusing. And that's kind of how this whole situation even transpired. Um, I wish I could reach out to her and check on her and see how the little one's doing, you know, stuff like that. Uh, um, I, I I wouldn't say it's PTSD, but that's something that does kind of affect me a little bit is I wish I could read, you know, I wish I knew how they were doing particularly right. as far as on myself. No. Um, again, being law enforcement, I've been in a couple of critical incidents. I've never had to discharge my firearm. I've come close a couple of times. Um, and then obviously we're doing armed security now. And then especially bail enforcement for those people that don't know, uh, you know, the, the slang term or the, unethical term is bounty hunter Mm -hmm. you know i work for a bail bondsman and we go after fugitives that don't show up to court you know uh they have arrest warrant for them you know so like i've i've been in fights and other things that generally most people don't get involved in more than a couple times in their life you know and i you know just like yourself being in law enforcement i'm sure you've been in your fair share of you know fights or critical incidences you know and um i i'm sure eventually someday those will probably weigh on me I think I'm young enough now and with my son and my family, I have enough good in my life. And I know that I did the right thing that day that I think that kind of overweighs some of those other feelings that I get. Um, sometimes I do f- feel a little, little sad that I couldn't have helped more, but the ultimate feeling of like PTS or like, do I have stress from it? I don't think so. Um, yeah. So there's, nah, two, I don't there's, think so. there's two things I wanted to touch on that you just mentioned that I think are important. One is, um, if you're in law enforcement or paramedic or military or any kind of career and you're seeing awful stuff all the time, I cannot recommend enough having a good spiritual life and a good family life to the extent that you can. I didn't spend a lot of time hanging out with uh, my fellow agents or officers or deputies off duty. I did. I socialized sometimes, but I think it's critical for anyone in a job like that to have friends who we call them normies, have friends who are, are just do regular jobs or accountants or uh, movie theater managers or whatever um, and have a good spiritual life, have a good, you know, for us, it's church. And uh, most of my friends are people from church so that I'm not constantly in that world. I get a break from all the muck and the awfulness and the stress and I get to talk to regular people. And the second part of that is um, being in law enforcement or being in fire EMS or certain jobs in the military or, like an ER nurse. These are jobs that you see things routinely every day uh, that if somebody else witnessed them, it would be a story they would tell for the rest of their lives. It would be the, the, the most shocking thing they'd ever seen. So don't forget that you, you don't want to get too used to it. You don't want to, cause that stuff builds up um, over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Every, every cop, every paramedic I know, every fireman I know has a little vault the back of their brain where they put all this stuff, all the abused children and the twisted bodies from car accidents and all, mm-hmm. all of it. And they put it away. It's important to unpack that at some point. Um, I'm not saying you can deal with everything all at once or just as it happens. Sometimes it takes time to process stuff, but a good therapist or at very least, you know, a good friend who's been there, someone else has been in your situation or a member of the clergy or whatever, just someone to get it out, get extricated from you. Um, because if it just stays in that vault forever and ever, it's going to come up one way or another, and it's going to come up in a way you don't want it to. Um, oh, absolutely. In, in an unpleasant way. Um, was there anything that you wanted to touch on that I forgot? I don't want to miss anything, uh, sir. Uh, so just kind of going to your last point there, you know, if, if you're ever in a situation like this or, you know, people like you and I that are in, in or were in job professions that can potentially cause these stressors, I explained, you know, I did the law enforcement for, two and a half years, uh, been a volunteer firefighter most of my adult life. You know, I drove an ambulance for a while. We've, we see and do some crazy things that 
you know, everybody watches on TV and thinks, oh, that would be cool. That's mm. awesome. You know, but when you see it and do it in real life, like you realize how horrible and how awful some of these things are. You know, when you see a mangled, like you said, mangled body on the side of the road from a nasty car accident or, or motorcycle accident, like that changes you. And, you know, or, or some of these other things you see, you know, walking up to, to a scene and like, we won't get into detail about that, but it does, it changes you. So you need to find, find that release. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that helps me is like you said, I have good friends. Um, I have great family. I do. I know we, we fly our flag high at active self-protection. Yes. Um, I am, fa- I am faithful. Uh, I will say doing the job and doing these other jobs that I do now, um, I don't see nearly as much as I used to. I don't fight people as much as I used to, but at the same time, I told you earlier, I bleed my heart on my shoulder. Um, and I try to think that all people are good, but I see so much bad that I know it's not. And, uh, because of that, I do struggle with my faith, you know, so really put some effort into that. It's kind of, you know, whether it be family, whether it be faith, and I'm kind of rambling now, but okay. you really need to find something that you can you can really hold on to and believe in. And uh, you know, I lost my mom a couple of years ago, and it does it makes you question like, is there a God? Is there is there a true higher being that is nothing but good? You know, because we do see so much evil. Um, so just just know that you know it's okay to talk to people. Um, reach out if you need the help, whether it's clergy like you explained or a good friend. Um, I've I've done both, and I'm very fortunate that one of my best friends is a pastor, you know, and I've been able to do that. And if you're ever in a situation like this, um, or even worse, you have to discharge a firearm or you have to protect your life in, in the worst way, um, just know talking to someone will help. You know, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. Um, but telling that story, like you said, it's going to relieve some of that pressure and some of that baggage. And ultimately, it's it's going to make you feel healthier in the long run. Mason Pants, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate your time. Well, alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Gutowski Files, starring Stephen Gutowski. He and I were talking before we hit the record button, and he referred to the Gutowski Files as a palate cleanser after the main interview. I prefer to think of it as dessert. Uh, it, is, it is a little extra goodness at the end of the meal that is the main interview. And I'm going to go off topic here uh, if I don't stop immediately. Stephen, how are you, sir? <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, it's certainly uh, after listening to potentially harrowing self-defense stories, you know, you're just getting some gun news here. It's a little bit less uh, stressful, perhaps at yeah. times. Lower, lower the blood pressure after the main interview is over, perhaps. Although I guess it depends on the story. That's true. Uh, that's true. Well, this this week's story may may not lower your blood pressure. We'll see. Uh, we're talking about Illinois and an article over at TheReload.com. By the way, Stephen is the founder of TheReload.com and the host of the Weekly Reload Podcast, which you can be found on all of your podcast networks as well as on The Reload YouTube channel. Who was, who was on this week, Stephen? Uh, this week, we had Alan Beck. Okay. See, I forgot for a split second and immediately remembered right before it would have been awkward to well done. have a pause. So that was pretty impressive, I think. The brain is working well today. Uh, Alan Beck is a independent gun rights lawyer, doesn't work for any of the major gun rights groups, but he files cases oftentimes in Hawaii, okay. which makes sense because Hawaii has some of the strictest gun laws in the country. And last week he had two major victories, one against the uh, butterfly knife ban that they had in Hawaii and one against these sensitive places restrictions, this sort of Bruin response laws we've talked a lot about on the show. And so right. we had him on to discuss his big week. Uh, he's also filing a whole new suit against uh, another Hawaii jurisdiction where they try to make you waive your attorney client privilege, your uh, privilege between you and your priest, even uh, when you go to apply for your concealed carry license. That's not um, a thing. Sorry. No, I can't. (laughs) Hey, as a federal agent listening to known bad guys on wiretaps, if you call your priest, your lawyer, I have to disconnect immediately. I can't listen to any of that. So you didn't, you didn't, uh, didn't find the magic loophole, I guess, that this sheriff in yeah. Hawaii has, to Hawaii, where you can just 
you know, violate all your privacy rights. Uh, recent events got and and prayers out to everyone in in in, uh, in Maui yeah. and Lahaina. That was just terrible, and it's still unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, we're recording this on Monday. Just heartbreaking stuff. Um, yeah. But Hawaii's the, the local government there is just so just so v- rabidly anti-gun. We have a friend of the channel and fellow employee Soleil Roche who lives out there, and uh, she got her actually got her concealed weapons permit. Chief of the Honolulu Police Department. Gave her the the okay. Oh, hit my mic. Gave her the okay and the go ahead. So, which means that she can now walk di- directly out the front path of her house and spin around in a circle on the sidewalk, and that's where she can carry it. Or that's what they would. That's what they would like to have happen. At any rate, we're not and that's what one of the cases was about that he just won. So people should check out that interview if they want to hear. Please a do more. over at the reload. There's always a link, by the way, in the description on the audio version over to the reload. So check that out and consider getting a membership. It's well worth it. Uh, we are not talking about Illinois this week, or excuse me, about Hawaii. We're talking about Illinois. And the headline over at the reload um, by Stephen Gutowski, Illinois Supreme Court reverses ban against assault weapons, ban- or excuse me, reverses ruling against assault weapons ban. I can talk. Um, and this is actually really interesting because it has a lot more to do kind of with, with the angle that the plaintiffs took rather than the Second Amendment. So kind of tell us what's going on over there, Stephen. Yeah, certainly. So that Illinois assault weapons ban, you know, AR-15 ban, uh, uh, magazine limits, and, uh, you know, obviously bans lots and lots of other guns besides the AR-15, but that's the main focus of most of these sorts of bans. Uh, that's now back in effect uh, for the moment because the state case is now over. And yeah, the interesting twist to it, as you alluded to, is that they didn't make this decision on Second Amendment grounds or gun rights grounds. Uh, Instead, this case was focused on equal protection grounds. So uh, as is usually the case with most of these kinds of bans that exist, these sales bans, there are exceptions for law enforcement, both active duty law enforcement and even retired law enforcement. Hmm. Uh, And then there's also exceptions for People who owned the guns before the effective date of the, the sales ban. The grandfather. And, yeah, grandfather clause, typical stuff that you'll see. Uh, although not every proposal has that. And some of the more extreme ones get rid of all of that. And they're just kind of possession bans generally. But mm-hmm. this one has your traditional grandfather clause and all that. And the case here focused on the idea that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and, and Illinois State Equal Protection um, uh, powers would prevent this law from going into effect because it creates different um, categories of people who are subject to it. So the people who aren't given one of these exceptions don't have the same equal protection as uh, people who are. So uh, that was how this case went forward and what was litigated on. There was also some pre- procedural stuff in Illinois. You're supposed to, uh, there's, certain time periods you're supposed to have the bills go through the legislature in. they can't, uh, they're designed to keep bills from being sort of jammed through really quick. And um, this, the plaintiffs accused the lawmakers in Illinois of violating that as well. And ultimately the Supreme court of the, of Illinois decided that uh, neither of those claims worked, that equal protection wasn't violated by this. And, so now the law is back in effect and they did not consider the second amendment claim that was added to this case by the plaintiffs. So they just don't bother even addressing whether or not the, these sorts of sales bans uh, are foreclosed by the second amendment to the constitution or by the Illinois state constitution. I think it raises a couple of questions, but not the least of which is, so for example, um, federal law enforcement, I retired federal law enforcement. We were um, issued, if you wanted to have one, or if you're on the special response team, you were issued an M4 rifle, which is an AR variant, um, which has uh, the the selector switch includes three round bursts, which is not legal for the average person. Um, I, I just wonder, uh, are, are they going to take this? Do we know if the plaintiffs are going to then regroup and try to refile this as more of a Second Amendment case and kind of abandon the equal protection aspect of it? That's a good question, right? Because effectively what this does is it resets the whole state level legal claim. So if you want to make that second amendment claim, and the plaintiffs did try to do that in this Supreme Court case, this Illinois Supreme Court case, but the court said they didn't do it properly. They hadn't initially made the second amendment claims and 
So they couldn't do it when they got to the, the Supreme Court level. Um, and, you know, maybe that's, you know, I'm not a lawyer in Illinois, so, uh, you know, how valid these this finding is, I don't know, but you could look at it as potentially strategic litigating on both the part of the Supreme Court justices. So, in, by the way, in Illinois, they elect their Supreme Court justices and they're, and they're partisan. So they run as Democrats or Republicans. And there are currently uh, five Democrats on the, the state Supreme Court and two Republicans. Mm-hmm. I and mean, you can even have things like the governor, who's the defendant in this case, gave money to the campaigns of some of these justices that's uh, allowed in Illinois. Uh, you know, uh, that's how they do their Supreme Court. It's not, and they're not alone. There are other states where the Supreme Court justices are elected instead of appointed, and and there can be partisan affiliations for them as well. So it's not completely out of the ordinary, but it, that's how it works in Illinois. So you can uh, kind of uh, look at these judges as maybe even more explicitly political players than normal. But uh, this ruling was actually four to three in this case. So they, one of the Democrats did flip uh, to the no side. And um, you can look at that as perhaps they were trying to avoid the Second Amendment question at all, you know, the gun rights question in this law, because if the Supreme Court of Illinois rules that the Second Amendment doesn't uh, protect against these sorts of sales bans, that could be appealed to the United States Supreme Court directly. And so if they don't rule that, they don't rule on that at all, well, you're much less likely to get a case appealed up to the Supreme Court of the United States on those grounds. So sure. it sort of resets the whole thing. If you want to make the Second Amendment claims, you've got to go back and start at the beginning again. And so it kind of delays things, which is not an, uh, an unheard of tactic in the legal world, right? If, if a judge on a lower court thinks that, well, I'd, I'd like to rule a certain way, but I think the court above me is going to knock that down. Maybe they choose to take a, a, you know, a less complete path and just rule on a different aspect and make the plaintiffs go back to the bottom. At the same time, you could also look at it, the plaintiff side. Perhaps they didn't argue this properly because they, you know, they didn't add this Second Amendment claim until later on, uh, or maybe they were, maybe thought they'd had a better chance with equal protection claims, which did flip one of the Democrats. So, uh, you know, there's a couple of interesting layers to this as far as strategic litigation goes. Interesting. So I just wanted to read a quote from U.S. District Judge Stephen uh, P. McGlynn, who uh, uh, had a decision involving this, a separate case or separate case, I believe. Um, or was the same case? So there's a, there's a federal case too. Yes. Okay. I right. just wanted there, to read. There's, there's the state case, which is what just got resolved. Right. Uh, against the plaintiffs and for the state of Illinois. But there's also a simultaneous federal case against the same law on Second Amendment grounds. Okay, And that's where this judge you're about to read from, he ruled um, in a case on that. Uh, go ahead and read that, that quote. Actually. Yeah, I was going to say, this, sh- this should be carved somewhere in granite and put in public because um, this is one of the best quotes I've ever, ever read about this topic. Quote, can the senseless crimes of a relative few be so despicable to justify the infringement of the constitutional rights of law-abiding individuals in hopes that such crimes will then abate or at least not be as horrific. Uh, yeah, there's more to that quote than that, but that's absolutely gold. I, that was he, he crystallized it as far as I'm concerned. And as you can probably tell from that quote, he ruled that this sales ban, this assault weapons ban, so-called assault weapons ban, um, violates the Second Amendment. And that, that's the ruling we have in the federal court. Now, this has been appealed, of course, by the Illinois government. And it's currently sitting at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the circuit that you know, obviously covers Illinois and, and several other states. And the, they had oral arguments in that case back in June. So we're just waiting for a ruling to come down out of that court, that's the that's the place to watch now. This the state case has been resolved for for now. Plaintiffs could go back and file that Second Amendment claim and start from the beginning there. Maybe they will, but uh, the more immediate thing that's going to happen is the second Seventh Circuit decision. And right now, that lower court judge that you just read uh, from his opinion, his ruling has been stayed, so the the law is in effect. If you're in Illinois, you can't buy these guns at the moment. But 
that could change soon, depending on what the Seventh Circuit does. And then from there, you know, you, you could get, uh, the, if depending on which way it goes, you could get an appeal to the full Seventh Circuit because these start, you know, these start at a panel level. So you get three judges and then that can be appealed to the higher level of the court, which is all the, the judges on that court, that appeals court. And then from there, you go up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, <laughs> of course, you can appeal right to the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of ins and outs and intricacies with this stuff. But uh, right now, you want to wait and see what happens in that panel from the Seventh Circuit. That's the next next big thing to see. This is why we have you on, sir, to help explain to us uh, and to the audience uh, some of the intricacies of this stuff, because it is interesting stuff and it does have uh, impact on everybody, not just people in Illinois. Um, precedent matters. So, folks, do me a favor. If you're lamenting the lack of down-the-middle scene, sober reporting on the Second Amendment and all things gun-related, go over to TheReload.com, TheReload.com, and check it out. Consider getting a membership. Stephen and his staff, which hopefully will be growing, relies on the membership dues to fund their important work. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful week, sir. Uh, I will see you next week. And as always, you have the last word. Absolutely.